Let's continue in worship this morning as we open God's Word to the book of Acts, chapter 16. And we are looking this morning at verses 11 through 18. Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16 as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and sufficient word. We continue our study of this great doctrine of God's awesome providence uh, by considering together the, the events that are recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. As a reminder, God's providence as defined by the historic catechisms is God's most wise, holy, and powerful preserving, governing, and ordering all his creatures and all their actions to his own glory. Notice with me the all-encompassing nature of the language. All his creatures along with all their actions. Last week, we saw God's providence manifested surprisingly through an unexpected separation between Barnabas and Paul. It was manifested beautifully through a very consequential encounter between Paul and Timothy. And it was manifested strangely through closed doors. And providence was the hand moving all these things. This morning, as we enter into verses 11 through 18, we will consider God's providence, but this time our passage will apply God's providence, this glorious doctrine, to a very specific realm, the realm of the unseen, the realm of the spiritual. So without further ado, here's the central theme for our meditations this morning. If you're following along in the notes, God's providence is manifested powerfully, powerfully, how? Through spiritual conquest. 
spiritual conquest. The spiritual realm is where the battle is raging hotter than anywhere else. If you think about it, everything we are seeing today, all the lines that are being drawn in the political sand, the social sand, the sexual sand, the ethical sand, etc., etc., they all find their root in a battle which we cannot see with our physical eyes. All these things find their root in the battle for the soul, the battle for the soul, which is by far the most consequential battle of all. And as we continue to learn from the book of Acts, darkness and light, do they ever mix? No, they don't. <laughs> they don't. They cannot coexist. They never mix like water and oil, which can be in the same container but never fully combine into one. Darkness and light are both found in this world, but they are never to be mixed. They are mutually exclusive. As the kingdom of the Lord Jesus advances through gospel preaching and teaching, the kingdom of darkness retreats, and this by necessity, by necessity. Briefly, remember with me the context. Paul and Barnabas separated in Antioch. Barnabas and John Mark went to Cyprus, which was Barnabas' hometown, while Paul and Silas went through Syria. Eventually, Paul and Silas made their way back to Lystra, where Paul and Silas met young Timothy, exactly. Afterward, the, the three of them, plus Luke, they wanted to go to Asia and Bithynia to preach the gospel there, but God providentially hindered them. Long story short, they ended up in Macedonia. How they got there is recounted for us in verses 11 and 12. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. We are now in Macedonia with Luke, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. As we think about this, let me ask you, why should we care about this context involving geography? a voyage, the Macedonian district, and that this was a Roman colony. Many of these places most of us will never see. It is unlikely I personally will walk any of these cities. The Roman Empire fell a long time ago. Other than reading through Acts and other books, I may not think very often of Samothrace or Troas or Neapolis. Why should we care about these details? Allow me to highlight two reasons. First, it shows these, these cities and the, the context, it shows that the progress of the gospel is a historical event. Is a historical event. Yes, we are thinking about the providence of God, but this providence of God is not detached from actual human history. The kingdom of Jesus advances in this world through real people who speak real languages. 
real languages, who make his gospel known through real words, who take real trips. They go to real cities and struggle through real challenges, real opposition, and real threats. This is how the gospel goes into all the world. You see, my friend, the Bible deals with heavenly doctrine, but one that directly touches human life down to the very details. That's the first reason we should care about the context. But second, the context also reveals something glorious about the providence of God. That geography, those circumstances, those people, and even those governments and those empires serve the ultimate purposes of God. And the purposes of God include spiritual conquest. And please know that I'm using that language of conquest for a reason. I'm being very intentional about it. The word conquest has the immediate connotation of war and victory or victory in the midst of war. Conquest has the idea of military advance in which the enemies are defeated and victory is achieved. And it was in those contexts, inside the district of Macedonia, under the rule of the Roman Empire, in the city of Philippi, that God had ordained for his spiritual conquest to continue. Brothers and sisters, the passage in front of us is of extreme importance, for it reminds us that victory does indeed belong to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These verses are meant to cement this conviction within our hearts and our minds. How? How will they cement this conviction? Well, the Holy Spirit will draw our attention to two specific examples of God's providence as seen first in spiritual conversion in verses 13 through 15, and second in spiritual deliverance in verses 16 through 18. So let us see each of these manifestations of divine providence in turn. Number one, God providentially converted the heart of Lydia God providentially converted the heart of Lydia to understand the gospel. Verses 13 and 15. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Philippi was a Roman colony, which means it was a highly privileged city. To be a Roman colony meant the city had a certain elevated status in the eyes of the people. And we know by now that everywhere Paul went, he had the habit of looking for what? What was the first thing he was looking for? Jewish synagogues. First, in order to preach the gospel to his fellow Jews. Hence the mention of the Sabbath day. This is also why Timothy, you remember he was circumcised. 
He was circumcised so that Paul could continue doing so without any hindrance. But in God's providence, there was no Jewish synagogue in the city of Philippi. Apparently, the Jewish community was very small, and at least 10 men would have been needed for the establishment of a Jewish synagogue. So it was a very small Jewish community. So they went to the next best thing, a place of prayer. I love how Paul and the others were looking for these opportunities for gospel ministry. They were intentionally looking for ways to promote the gospel. They were driven by a zeal to make the name of Jesus known. Do we, do we have that zeal? Do we live our lives looking for opportunities to make the name of Jesus known? These were purposeful missionaries who used their time wisely. Having arrived at this place of prayer, they found a group of women. And to them, Paul spoke. What did he speak to them? Well, we have no reason to believe he said anything other than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen many examples of this already. Who were these women? Well, we're not told. We, he doesn't say anything about them except one of them, a woman named Lydia. What do we know about Lydia? Three things are mentioned in this text. She was from a city called Theatira. Thyatira. She sold purple goods, and she was a worshiper of God. In other words, she was a businesswoman. She was a businesswoman probably of very significant financial means, who specialized in treating cloth with purple dye, probably of the very expensive kind. So basically, she sold luxury items, luxury items. Theotira was known for this very specific skill. Moreover, she was a worshiper of God. What does that mean? Well, that means she had embraced much of the Jewish teaching without becoming an actual practicing Jew. Much like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, she was very friendly to the Jewish religion, but hadn't taken the steps to make a full embrace of the Jewish religion. She had an intellectual attachment to the religion of the Jews. She had probably heard the name of Yahweh and might have had some knowledge of Old Testament stories. Yet, with all that, she wasn't saved. She wasn't saved. She knew about God, but she didn't know God. You see, my friends, it is one thing to know about God, to be close to God, to be familiar with God, and even to be friendly with God. It is another thing altogether to be known by God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. But that faith, the eyes to see who God is in Christ, cannot come from us. But as we know and as we affirm, Lydia's life, and we know this as well, Lydia's life was not an assortment of random, inconsequential, meaningless, unattached facts and circumstances. It might have looked and felt like that to her up until that point. Like the underside of a tapestry, she might have perceived her own life as a bunch of disconnected threads leading nowhere. Maybe she found in the, in the Jewish religion some sort of cohesiveness to a life that otherwise might have seemed completely senseless. So let me extend a, a brief word of caution. It is possible for people to do that. 
After all, we all need anchors. We all need something that can bring a sense of unity, cohesiveness, and order to our lives. For many Gentiles, this meant giving themselves into paganism and idolatry. For others, like Lydia, it meant following the religion of the Jews, as in the case of Cornelius as well. But notice, please, that all of this fell short. At the end of the day, we need salvation. What Lydia didn't know was that on that very day, her ultimate need would be met. Here's what happened next. Consider with me the second half of verse 14. As Paul spoke, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What are we, what are we to make of this? Well, it wasn't like, I just want to clarify this. It wasn't like God was following the unfolding of these events as an onlooker. Notice that Lydia was within earshot of Paul's message, decided right there and then to take advantage of this favorable situation, gave her a little nudge in the right direction, and then waited to see what would happen next. My friend, that is not the God who created the universe. And the God who upholds all things by the word of his power, that's not the answer. God is never a mere spectator of unfolding events. God is God. And what happened on that day was providence. Lydia didn't happen to be there at the right times and at the right place. She didn't happen to be a Gentile businesswoman. She didn't happen to be just walking by that place. Not at all. Just like God tells the stars, this is your place of habitation. You will go nowhere else. And just like he says to the raging sea, this is your limitation. You will go no further. So too, God in his good, perfect, and eternal counsel had ordained that Lydia would find herself here and nowhere else in this precise moment so that the word of life would be given to her and she might live and be raised into a new life. This is the work of God. This is the work of providence. Think about it. God ordained and God created and established all the facts of her life down to the smallest detail to bring her up to this point in her life, the climax of it all, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That moment, that moment was the reason she was conceived and born into this world. That moment. Lydia had an immovable appointment with and established by God. Consequently, the Bible says her eyes were opened to Paul's message. This is the spiritual conquest. God can overcome our darkness. God can overcome our darkness and our ignorance. Just think about it. Really, really think about it, my friends. Paul and his companions, as well as all the other apostles and disciples, were tasked with the following. Consider this. Go into all the worlds. And tell the people, go into all the world and tell the people that a crucified Jew named Jesus is God in the flesh. That he died for our sins. That he rose again. 
and that in him and in him alone there is forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. All other gods tell them, all other gods are false gods, tell them that they must repent of their sins, trust in Jesus, and follow him for the rest of their lives. Come persecution, come suffering, come whatever else, tell them to bow the knee before this crucified Jew named Jesus. Go, tell them. Brothers and sisters, do you see the impossibility of this task? I'm not asking, do you see the difficulty of it? Do you see the impossibility of it? Who will ever believe? Well, you're here, aren't you? You're here. I'm here. Here's a full confession. Can I, be, can I give you a confession? Sometimes, right before I stand behind this pulpit, like seconds before, I have conversations with the Lord as I'm standing there waiting for the final prayer. And I say, Lord, what difference is this going to make? What difference is this going to make? Is it going to make any difference? Thankfully, I quickly receive the rebuke. And thankfully, right before I get here, and I answer my own question, and I say to myself, remember who is the one you're speaking to. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. What difference is this going to make? What difference is the preaching of the gospel going to make? What difference are missionaries going to make around the world? Here's the difference that they can make. Whatever difference the eternal Lord of heaven and earth can make. And he can make an eternal difference. He is Lord, therefore he can and does overcome the darkness of our hearts. He opens our eyes and he gives us faith. It is his work, whatever darkness, whatever confusion, whatever idols there might be in our minds and hearts, Jesus the Lord can overcome all of them and many, many more. Listen, clearly there was an instrument being used here. What was that instrument? Paul's words. Paul's words. Paul had to speak. Lydia had to listen. Faith comes by hearing. No message, no faith. Preach the gospel and by all means use your words. The message must be heard. Jesus died and rose again. You must believe these things must be heard. This is a very human thing. It happens in history through words received by the ears. But make no mistake, only God can give us faith. Only God can open our eyes. And on that day, Lydia was given faith. Her eyes were open to understand what Paul was saying, meaning she was given the eyes to understand the gospel. God saved her on that day. How do we know? Look at verse 15. After she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She was baptized. Having heard the gospel of the Lord from Paul and having received the heart to believe from the Lord, she publicly followed the Lord through baptism. She said, I understand that my salvation is found in that man, Jesus Christ, who died for my sins and rose again. I will follow him. So then she says to Paul and to the rest, if you think I am being sincere in my actions, if you deem me a true disciple, please come and stay at my house. And so they did. And apparently Lydia's house became a type of house church for all the believers. So let me ask you this. Have you been baptized? 
Have you been baptized? Should you be baptized? Well, have you believed, as Lydia did, in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you think he died in your place? Let me put it in the negative. Let me put it in the negative. Have you come to the realization that apart from Jesus and him crucified, you wouldn't have any hope of forgiveness? If that's you, then thank the Lord for giving you faith. Follow the example of Lydia and be baptized. We learn from this that the Lord Jesus, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, is the one who providentially overcomes our darkness and our unbelief. No human will can oppose him. Even the darkened Saul had to bow the knee before the Lord when his time came. And now the same man who now goes by Paul, confident to preaches the word, because he knows that the Lord is in charge of saving. God opens the eyes. There is no prevenient grace here. It is all providential grace from beginning to end. The Lord goes forth in the power of the Spirit as His Word is preached, and He conquers the dead and rebel hearts. Please, in your Bibles, turn briefly to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. Go to chapter 37. In a vision, Ezekiel saw a valley, a valley full of dead and dry bones. What's the picture? Utter hopelessness. Utter hopelessness. What can, what can anyone possibly do with dead and dry bones? bones. It would not be possible to conjure up a more definitive picture of helplessness than a valley of dead and dry bones. That's not a place to visit. It is a place of lamentation, impotence, and sorrow. But that was precisely the point of the vision, to leave Ezekiel with a sense of impotence. So God basically brings him to the valley of dead bones, and he says, go at it, Ezekiel. Just look at this valley and go at it, Ezekiel. Take a shot. See if you can make anything happen here in this valley. Can you imagine? You are Ezekiel, and you're seeing this vision, and the Lord is telling you, do something. Go. Make a difference. What would you say? I would probably say, Lord, I, I know there is a lesson here. I just can't see it. I don't know what it is. There is a lesson indeed. In verse 3, God asked Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Ezekiel answered, oh, Lord, God, you know. In other words, Lord, I'm just a human being here. This is way beyond my pay grade. All I know is that the bones are really, really, really dead and really, really dry. But then the Lord said to Ezekiel, the words upon which the entire Christian life and the entire Christian church is and will continue to be built. Verse 5, God said, Ezekiel, here's what you need to do. Prophesy over these bones. 
and say to them, Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So Ezekiel did, and lo and behold, the bones came to life. What Ezekiel, was Ezekiel that powerful? No, Ezekiel had no power whatsoever, but what Ezekiel did was to preach what? The word of the Lord. And guess what, my brothers and sisters, on that day, as Paul spoke to these women, the same word went forth, and the same Lord made the heart of Lydia become alive. And this morning, as the word is preached from this pulpit and all across the word, the same word and the same Lord is bringing people to life. And so we join with ancient Job, behold this awesome providence and simply say to God, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Indeed, God's providence cannot be thwarted, not by human unbelief, nor by demons. Let us briefly consider this next. God providentially delivered a slave girl from demonic influence. God providentially delivered a slave girl from demonic influence. Verse 16 through 18, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own, her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Undoubtedly, God's providence reaches even into the world of the demonic. No question about that. He rules over the kingdom of Satan. In this specific case, the word Luke uses to describe the evil spirit is python. Python. Who would have thought? There's a snake involved in this case. The girl was a slave. She had owners who used her demonic influence to tell the future and make money, probably through deception. This will become quite important next week. Python was the name of an idol of antiquity who was associated with future telling. But Paul had no time for fake names. He knew it was a, an evil spirit, a demon. But this is somewhat bizarre. The girl and the demon was leading the girl to say things that seemed to be supportive of their cause, not against it. The girl cried out in verse 17, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. What's wrong with her words? What's wrong is that it would have been a well-known fact that this girl was being used by evil, evil spirits. Therefore, Paul wanted no association with whatever came out of her mouth. This is very important. Even though the demon-inspired words might have sounded fairly orthodox, Paul wanted no confusion regarding his message. The God being spoken of by the girl could have been understood as any other God in a very polytheistic culture. Maybe even the best of gods 
But Paul wanted nothing to do with this potential confusion, which is what Satan loves, by the way. He loves confusion. So Paul became greatly annoyed. The word there can mean disturbed or burdened. Most likely, he felt burdened for the girl and annoyed by the confusing message. And so in verse 18, having exhausted Paul's patience, he simply turned to the girl and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Question, question, why even allow this poor girl to be under such terrible circumstances? Could God not have prevented it to begin with? Yes, he could have. Just like God could prevent everything else that is bad, then why would he allow this girl to be under such extreme circumstances and the influence of demonic uh, or demons? In John chapter 9, Jesus passed by a man born blind. You remember that story? Seeing the man, his disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? You remember that conversation? In other words, whose fault is it that this man is blind, to which Jesus graciously responded in verse 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but why was he born blind? Why was he still blind? Why was he under these circumstances? But that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed the man's blindness. Likewise, the slave girl was in this condition for the sake of displaying the might of the Lord publicly and definitively. Notice two things. First, Paul commanded the evil spirit in the name of Jesus. Second, the demon obeyed. The demon obeyed. So I ask, brothers and sisters, who is in charge? The Lord Jesus the Lord Jesus. Jesus is in charge. He is Lord. Did the girl become a believer? I would say based on the context, we have no reason to believe she did not. Her deliverance likely gave way to faith in Jesus, and she probably joined the rest of the believers. So demonic activity is real. Satan is alive, but he's not well. Satan is alive but he's not well. Someone infinitely greater than him is plundering his house. His name is Jesus. And there is no turning back. Remember what we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8? Or remember what we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8? The Son of God appeared, or the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. One day, Christ's work of destruction of the devil's work will be complete. In the meantime, here are a few practical lessons that we can draw from this. A few practical lessons. Because of God's awesome Providence, be courageous, be courageous. Darkness and unbelief cannot and will not prevail. Currently, 
darkness seems to be prevailing as we look at the current condition of the world. But because of the ultimacy of God's providence, darkness cannot and will not prevail. Whether we are speaking about the need for spiritual conversion or the need for deliverance from satanic blindness, in both cases, we have been shown that God's providence always, always wins. Therefore, we must not fear the darkness, neither must we give into cowardliness. We must be strong. But as Paul says, we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Here's the second lesson. Because of God's awesome providence, be faithful. Be faithful. The Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is sufficient. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. And hear with me Paul's convictions about his own calling and the nature of the battle. The nature of the battle. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, said Paul, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse, Paul says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with what? God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, small g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That sounds very very depressing, very discouraging. But keep reading. Verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, in the face of much darkness, in the face of much unbelief, in the face of strong demonic influence, what do we do? We have one thing to do. We hold fast to the Word. We hold fast to the Word. Only God can remove the veil. Let us keep trusting Let us keep obeying and let us keep proclaiming the word to all. Let us never cater to the world, but let us remain faithful to the word is the only hope. Here's a third lesson. Because of God's awesome providence, be hopeful. Be hopeful. Lydia and the slave girl are microcosmic examples. Of a what? 
a macrocosmic work. Lydia and the slave girl are microcosmic examples of a macrocosmic work. In the Bible, individual stories are often representative of global realities. Lydia and the slave girl are no exceptions. In connection to this, listen to the words of the Baptist Catechism of 1689. In question 29, they ask this, How does Christ execute the office of a king? You know, he's our prophet, he's our priest, and he's also our king. But consider this question, question 29 of the Baptist Catechism of 1689. How does Christ execute the office of a king right now? Here's the answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling, in defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, end quote. On that day, the Lord Jesus encountered and conquered two of his enemies. He conquered unbelief in the case of Lydia by giving her faith. And he conquered a demon in the case of the slave girl by giving her freedom. Whatever the enemy, Jesus is the true Lord over all. He is the true king. Of all kings. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us be hopeful. Let us be hopeful. So, what do we do as we think ahead? Let us think ahead as we begin to prepare for next Lord's Day. Consider even now what we will encounter another wave of trials and tribulations is in store for Paul and Silas in chapter 16, verses 19 through 40. How does God's providence relate to those trials and those tribulations? What do we learn from it? And where is it all headed? Hopefully, we will get to that next week, and hopefully, you will be here for that. In the meantime, let us pray to the Lord. Our Father, we thank you we thank you that you are the true, the true God of heaven and that Jesus, our Lord, is the true King of kings and the true Lord of lords. We thank you for the fact that because this is true, we have nothing to fear and we have been called to be hopeful and to be faithful and to be courageous. For his kingdom is a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. And we thank you for these wonderful examples that we have seen this morning. That whether it is unbelief or demonic influence, you, Lord, can overcome all of it. And so we pray even now for our own remaining unbelief. We pray, Father, that through the work of your Spirit and the power of your Word, you will continue to overcome these things in our lives so that our faith in you might be strengthened. 
So as we go into the world, as we go into our work of place, uh, place of work, as we interact with our friends and our neighbors, as we fulfill our weekly duties, help us, Lord, to remember that you are indeed Lord and that no enemy of yours can ever thwart your purposes. And for these things, we praise you. In the name of Jesus, your Son, amen.